Welcome to the Scale Without Burnout podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Silito. This podcast is a result of my purpose to help ambitious business owners like you avoid stress, overwhelm, and burnout in the workplace. In this podcast, I share everything I've learned about how to grow a profitable business, stay fit and healthy, maintain strong relationships, and develop the right mindset for success. So you can thrive, feel inspired, and work at your full potential. Seth Godin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here, wherever here is. Yeah, well, we're in Prague right now. I don't know, whereabouts are you? You're in Prague. We're, in, we're Prague. in cyberspace. Who knows where <laughs> yeah, we are? Somewhere in the, out there, yeah. So, Seth, I've been following you now for about 11 years, I think, since Purple Cow came out. That must have been about 2009, 2008, was it? Uh, yeah, it's been a while. Good run. Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to throw three things at you, and let's just see where it goes. And one thing okay. I would like to talk about is, is burnout. Because that's mm-hmm. a topic that's close to my heart and a big you know, part of this this show and this message that I'm talking about. Second thing is how to scale within a niche. Something you've talked about, particularly in this is marketing around the smallest viable market. And I'd like to touch on that, which probably yeah. links to the third part, which is why playing safe is risky, which was something that really stood out for me when I read Purple Cow. 10 years ago, whatever. And I have a confession to make around that. So if we have time, I'll share that with okay. you. So where do you feel most led to? Where should we take this for you? What would you... The story is poignant. And so many of us have had to deal with our own personal stories of burnout or others. So I want to talk about that for a minute. I've never met anyone who was burned out on lunch. I've never met anybody who was burned out on walking from their bedroom to their little kid's room, right? What causes burnout is not effort. What causes burnout is stress. And stress is caused by wanting to do two things at the same time. So it is not stressful to be where you want to be. It is stressful to feel like you need to do something at the very same time you don't want to do something. Mm -hmm. It is stressful to feel like you have to do something well at the very same time when you're not sure you can. It's that the very idea of stress in engineering is when there's two forces on something. And so the way to narrate your way through burnout is number one, clearly avoid any profession where everyone is burned out. If everyone is burned out, then there's something wrong with that thing. But if some people can do it with joy and with stamina, they are telling themselves a different story than you are telling yourself. And Getting clear about the story is the way we deal with stress. So I am not stressed about writing my blog. I've written my blog every day for 7,000 posts in a row. I don't have stress around it because it's what I want to do. And I gave myself permission a long time ago to stop doing it when it's not what I want to do. And that very permission turns it into something I get to do instead of something I have to do. So that's the first part. The second part, which gets to this idea of scaling, is there's a huge distinction between freelancers and entrepreneurs. And most of the stress that people who run very small businesses are facing, other than cash flow, has to do with not understanding that distinction. So let me take the two pieces. Mm -hmm. Freelancers get paid when we work. So I write every post on my blog. It's me. If I give a speech, it's me. That doesn't scale. It can't scale. It's me. Entrepreneurs must do work that causes other people to do the actual thing that's getting paid for. They cannot do the work themselves. So 
Here's the problem. You're a successful freelancer. You decide to become an entrepreneur. You decide to scale. But cash is tight. A project comes along. You're going to hire the very best available person who's also the cheapest. Do you know who that is? You. So you hire yourself over and over again, which keeps you from developing a bench, building an asset, and doing your real job, which is getting new clients, which is scaling. And so you're stressed out of your mind because you're both a freelancer and entrepreneur at the same time, you're not doing a good job of either one. And this was a huge eye-opener for me because I was an entrepreneur. I helped invent part of the internet. I built a company. I had 74 employees. 52 of them reported directly to me. That's incompetence. But I loved being a freelancer. So I loved that every game that Yo-Yo Dine invented, every innovation we had, I could point to and say, I was in the room or it was my idea. That was not good. That's not good entrepreneurship. And so now, most of the time, I'm a freelancer. Most of the time, I am very clear. I am doing the work. The Akimbo workshops, the Alt-MBA, I'm not in the Alt-MBA because I'm not freelancing my way through the Alt-MBA. The Alt-MBA, I invented. I built it once. But it's its thing. It's an institution, and it's run by people better than me. Mm-hmm. And that is the key <clears throat> distinction. I forgot what the third thing was. The third thing was was playing safe is risky, which which yeah. we'll come on to in a moment. Because, But I just want to play on that, what you just said, because... There's a few things I heard in there and the tension resonated with me because I think some of that tension is what I want to earn in the way of money and the job I'm doing yep. brings some tension. So I'll do this job because it makes me lots of money and it gives me the lifestyle that I think I want, but I'm not really enjoying it. So that, that can lead yeah. to burnout. I think that's what I heard in, in some of that. Yeah. I mean, and, let, me, let me address that for one second though, because that surprisingly is lazy and it's lazy because you know, you're an Uber driver doing two and a half shifts a day when you probably have the talent and hard work to make twice as much money working half as many hours if you did something that actually felt risky. But what you're doing is hiring yourself cheap to do a job you'd be better off having somebody else do. You should go earn what you're worth, but that's going to be scary. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that that you said resonated, which was, you're, you're, you say you do the, you're a freelancer and you delegate that other work, the alt MBA, and so on out to other people. That that sounds to me like entrepreneurialism. The fact yeah. that you can scale that, so you can do both. Right. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I'm on any given moment, I'm really clear about what I'm doing. So I am the architect of the workshop and the architect. So in that moment, I'm being a freelancer. But when Marie or Alex, or Graydon, or Taylor, or Sam is doing their job, if I am busy messing with them, I'm acting like a freelancer. Don't do that. Not allowed. Mm-hmm. So we we don't have a management structure here. We have a studio. And every person in my studio is responsible for what they do. And my job is to be one thing, the architect or the writer, to be the person on a video. But their job is to hire me to do things when they need it. And I'm not pretending that I'm some sort of Peter Drucker manager. I don't like it. I'm bad at it. I don't do it. And so I can't grow this organization to more than seven or eight people because it would fall apart. Right. And so what what advice would you have for somebody who is, and and particularly on those that are watching this on LinkedIn, a lot of recruitment consultants out there, a lot of recruitment business owners on LinkedIn, and they've built a business through brilliant, brilliant recruitment, you know, engaging with clients, meeting clients and doing all that good stuff. Before yep. they know it, they've got 20 people around them and they've got to lead. 
but the stuff they love doing is meeting the clients and now they have to let yeah. go of that. I mean, how does someone make that transition or should like, they make the transition if they love being out so there in the field? The other way to ask this question is how does a freelancer move up? Right. And the only way to do it is to get better clients. If you start trying to hire junior versions of you, you're going to get stressed out of your mind that, you know, when you think about Russell Reynolds or any other giant recruiting firms, they're a totally different flavor than everybody who's watching this. For everyone else who's watching this, you have a charismatic knack for what you do. Every minute you're not doing it because you're managing someone who's not quite as good, not quite as brave, not quite as hardworking as you, you are subtracting from your art, from your beauty. Stop doing that. Get smaller, double your fee. Get smaller, recruit higher paid people. That's how you move up. Not by trying to build this entity that one day you'll sell and then you can relax. Which never comes. Right. Good. Okay. And so one of the things I want to talk about as well was this concept of playing safe is risky. And the reason why I said a bit of a confession, because when I read the book, Purple Cow, back, well, it would have been 2009 when I read it. The following year, I took on the head coaching job for the British inline hockey team. So like ice hockey, and I know you you played ice hockey as a kid. I've read somewhere you, you had a little... Broke my nose, broke my arm, and then I went inline for a while. I never broke played it. hockey inline, but I, I mean, 20 miles, 30 miles, I used to love doing that. Right. Are you, is it Buffalo? Did you play in Buffalo? Did I make that up? No, I grew up in Buffalo playing hockey, and then I was a hockey coach. Yeah. Right, right. So I coached the British team, and our, our mantra was playing safe is risky. Because what, what I used to notice with the players, particularly when I got, first got involved, that they would just keep turning on the puck. They, they would see the opposition, and they kept playing playing safe. You know, yeah. and, and I wanted to play on the offense. And I said, hey, guys, playing safe is risky. And it was in my mind because of reading your book. The guys just loved it. And it became just this thing that we just kept, kept. And I didn't tell them that I read it in your book. So you thought I was Good. a genius. That's my, that's my confession. Fine um, with me. <laughs> that comes with the price of the book is you can take credit for anything that's in it. Right, right. But within 12 months, we went from being nearly relegated from the B pool to playing in the A pool. We played against the Czech Republic. We tied with them. We beat the Finns. I mean, we just went way above yep. expectations. So that's that was our experience of of this mantra of playing safe is risky. And, and I see it in business as well, you know, entrepreneurs. And I think it links to some of the things we've talked about already where they've got to take that leap or they've got to go into a new market or this idea of going niche requires some level of bravery. And because, yep. you know, I, you know, when I'm coaching someone, I say, well, you've got to get clear on your avatar. You've got to get clear on your market is you just go all in. So can we just play around with that for a little bit? Just. Well, so think about, think about who your business or creative heroes are. And I will argue that they fall into one of two categories. Either they got lucky because someone picked them because they were in the right place at the right time. But most of them, if you think hard, are specific. They are not general. They made a bet on a very specific way of being in the world and it worked. That's why they are your hero. You will not be able to follow in their footsteps by being generic by being general. We have to figure out how to be peculiar and specific to stand for something. And you know, you brought up recruiters. So is it risky to obsessively focus on programmers for the top 20 investment banks in the world? You know, rock star 
100x programmers who get paid five times more than anybody else who blow people away. That's all you do. Well, in order for that to be all you do, when you get a call to do any other search, you have to say no. That's scary. But every single person who's gotten to the other side got there by saying no. They got there by saying, no, I don't do that anymore. I do this. And so if you want to get to the other side, you have to begin by saying, I do this, but I do not do that. I'm done with that. And you have to have phone numbers for your former competitors handy. So when someone calls up and asks for you, you say, no, call these people. They do that. And until you are sending people to your competition, you're not serious about being specific. Right. And that's a whole level of bravery, uh, particularly in such a competitive market like recruitment, you know, actually there's one thing handing over clients within the business, let alone to other, other yeah. clients, but it shows an air of confidence as well, that you're serious about your market and the market you play in. So it sounds like it's, a, it's very much a mindset thing. So this idea of really going all in on your smallest viable market, something you talk about, and this is marketing. Tell us a little bit more about that and how someone should go about scaling within their, their chosen right. niche. Right. So it's interesting. We teach this in the marketing seminar. The number of recruiters who have been in the, how many people have taken the marketing seminar so far? 8,000, 10,000. I don't recall one recruiter taking it. And that's because recruiters don't think of themselves as marketers. But of course they are. Because if all you're doing is processing data, we don't need to pay you what we're paying you. Data processing is way cheaper than a recruiter. You are marketing to two groups. You are marketing to clients who need to believe you, trust you, see you, understand you, and have something to tell their boss about why they hired you. Mm -hmm. And you are marketing to people who are happily employed, because those are the people that are most worth recruiting, that you have something to offer them. These are stories that resonate with people. And if they're true, they work even better. These are marketing choices. And marketing is not advertising, even though you're probably spending a lot of money on LinkedIn. Marketing is what will you build? Who will you build it for? Who is it for? What change are you seeking to make? So where this all begins is, can you name 20 people, 40 people, 100 people by name who this is for? Because if you can't be specific, then you're going to go back to being a generalist. But if you can say specifically it's for people like this, then you can make something that will overwhelm them with goodness. And then you've solved an interesting problem and they will tell others. But if you are afraid of the critics, if you are trying to fit in for everybody, if you are hustling, then you won't do that. And you won't find the confidence to actually do good marketing. Yeah, that's and that's, you know, that again, people are sitting there thinking, but that's but I could help so many people. You know, I'm looking at my market and my product and and not just recruitment, but, you know, whether you're a personal trainer, whether you're I spoke to a guy today doing team building said I could but I can help these people and I can help these people. And how do I choose? Right. Well, I applaud the generosity because generosity is at the heart of all of this. But here's the thing. It's been a long time since someone made a profit selling milk. But you can make a profit selling high protein cashew milk to people who don't want to drink dairy and are looking for high protein and have this price point in mind. So it is not a generous act to make milk because if you show if you stop showing up with your milk, no one's going to miss you because there's another thing of milk right next to it that what it means to be a specific is we would miss you if you were gone. And I got to say for most people selling most products and services, they say they're being generous, but really 
They're just saying, I worked hard to get here. Please pay me. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and in this is marketing. There are, there are three questions that you ask. It's quite close to the beginning and I'm, it just popped into my head and I'm, I'm hoping you can remember what they are, but there were three questions that really helped. Kinds of, um, Who's it for? What's it for? What change do you seek to make? Yeah. Those well, three? I promised that there was. Yeah, oh, okay. Was, yeah. Well, that one you're going to have to look up. Basically what I'm arguing there is that too often marketing comes at the end of the cycle of creating something. And I am arguing that marketing is an intentional act. And so what we ought to be able to say before we start is for people who believe this and who want that, I am bringing you something that matches what you believe and helps you get what you want. So for people who believe that they can find good health at a health food store, who are looking for something new, I am promising that this herbal supplement will help you find peace of mind. Right. But if you're not one of those people, it's not for you. Right. Right. If you're happy with what you're already taking, it's not for you. If you don't believe in herbal remedies, it's not for you. If you think it's too expensive, it's not for you. Fine, fine, fine. It's yeah. for those people who believe this. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. Because if you say it out loud that clearly among your team, they can correctly say either A, there are no people like that, which is entirely possible. Or they can say, yeah, you're talking a good game, but this thing you're making, it doesn't match your promise. So let's right. make something better. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I, so that's, that's something I've learned certainly from you over the last few years is, is trusting that the message you're putting out there, as long as we're, it's compelling, there's a good product behind it that can help that person, people will start to listen. But people panic at the beginning. So they put it out there and they, there's, there's no feedback loop or we start to doubt. We start to worry that maybe there, there isn't a market for this. But there's something about well, that consistency of showing up yeah. every day. That consistency is super important. But before that kicks in, we need to figure out how to be honest in the following way. If I was one of these people who believed what I say and I knew what I know about this thing, would I buy it or is it just not that good? And second, if one of the people you're talking about does buy it, will they tell their friends? So one of my best blog posts is called First 10. And what it says is for most products and services and books and movies, just tell 10 people. And if the 10 people who trusted you enough to look at it don't tell anyone else, then you need to make a better product. Right. Yeah. First 10. Yeah. And I think that the truth of modern marketing is most stuff isn't very good. Right. Okay. So how do you stand out? What's in this, in this busy market, how does someone go about really truly standing out in the crowd? The only thing I know to do is to get the 10 people to tell other people, right? Because that's how we found out about size music video. And that's how we found out about Slack. And that's how we found out about Google. And that's how we go down the list. All of those organizations, we did not find out about them from the people who invented them. We found out about them from somebody else. Mm -hmm. And it's true that movies and political candidates spend a fortune on advertising. But even then, we rarely go to a movie because they ran an ad. We go to a movie because someone we know said we should go to see the movie. Right. So in the business world, then, what are people spreading? Do people spread the product? You should buy this product. Do they spread? Because we talk about storytelling a lot and the, the purpose behind the product. What are people really emotionally engaging with? Is it hey, I should buy this or I should listen to this or follow this? What comes first? 
people only talk about you because it helps them, not because it helps you. Right. So someone buys an overpriced Supreme t-shirt and wears it around, not because they like the people at Supreme, but because they want their friends to feel inadequate and they want to raise their status. Mm -hmm. That's why they're doing it. People talk about Twitter so that you will follow them on Twitter. Not because they want to help Twitter, but because their life will be better if they have more Twitter followers. Go down the list. People talk about stuff that raises their status, builds connection, helps them get to the emotional place they seek to get to. No one cares about you. And if you come at this of, you know, lots of travel agents, real estate brokers, et cetera, are stressed out because the internet gets rid of them. And they're like, whoa, but I worked so hard to be able to do this. You need a professional. You know what? Everyone's ignoring them because if you can't give them a better reason than that, they're on their own. Right, right. Right. So such wise words as always. And I'm sure what you're sharing with us is going to be incredibly helpful for those that are listening, watching on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, or watching the repeat uh, or listening to it on iTunes. Uh, I've I really appreciate your time. I've been a huge fan for years now and uh, I will continue to follow your work. If somebody is new to you, you know, they've, this is the first time they've seen you. Where should people, where should be the first place people go to learn a bit more or find out more? If you go to akimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O, that's our workshops. That's my podcast. And if you type Seth into your favorite search engine, you will find my 7,000 free blog posts. So between those two, you'll have most of what you need. Yeah. And I, I, I get your blog every day. It's it's amazing. You get that stuff out every day. And, and actually just on that, for those that are curious about how you blog every day, because there are a lot of content writers out there. Everyone's trying to, you know, like you say, be a marketer, regardless of their role. Do you batch your stuff or do you does have moments of inspiration daily? How does it work for you? Well, I'm not a content marketer. I'm a teacher and mm-hmm. I notice things. That's what I do for a living. I have four or five blog posts a day and you only see the one that I figured was the best one. And of course I have a file stockpiled up. So if I get the flu, they don't disappear. But every single night I look at tomorrow's blog post and often replace it with a new one. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Very good. Well, Seth, thank you so much for joining me. It it matters. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All the best. Take care. Ciao. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Scale Without Burnout podcast. For more free resources and content on how to grow and lead your business and become the best version of yourself, head over to andrewsilito.com.